Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Um, thanks for joining us this morning, especially if you're new, I want to thank you and welcome you. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here as well. Um, we are going to pray together and then jump into what we have in front of us. Father, as we come to you this morning, we're thankful for the sunshine that has come up. We're thankful for the chance to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, to have people that are visiting us in this time as we're worshiping together, and now to be able to turn and open your word together. Lord, as we come to your word today, we come hopeful and expectant that your spirit will move to help us to be able to see what you have for us, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you help us, Lord, to, to be able to see where our hearts are rooted, where our hearts get entangled, and to be, able to, to be able to see a greater beauty and glory in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I heard a story recently that I had to Google several times, several times before I believed it was actually true. Um, I was, it, it, it's a story about the great wine blight of the mid-1800s. This is a real thing. That in the mid 1800s, the and I probably could be more specific on years. You can Google it. Um, <laughs> so in the mid 1800s, there was um, there were there were issues in this country, and in uh, that is old vines were being brought over from Europe to vineyards that were starting up, particularly in Virginia. Uh, people they were having an issue that the old vines from the old from the old world they were were dying. They couldn't make it here. They kept rotting out, and so they decided to to try to figure out what was causing it. And and they, so they brought some vines and some soil from the United States over to France to try to work on that. What they didn't realize in doing that is that the reason that the vines were dying is that there were aphids, tiny microscopic aphids called the, I don't know how to say this, phylloxera. These little bugs traveled across the Atlantic in a soil sample, in a soil of American vines, and in the next, within a 15-year period, more than 40% of the vineyards in France were wiped out. And it was spreading fast and continued to spread. And so um, it, slowly over time, they discovered these aphids, they discovered these bugs, but by that point it was too late. There were vineyards in the United States that were being wiped out, vineyards across Europe that were being wiped out, and they were in a complete crisis because the, the vines had no roots to sustain them. They were being eaten up, and the vines were rotting. Today we're going to talk about Jesus, and that he calls himself the true vine. He says that he is the vine and we are the branches, and he's using imagery of a vineyard. 
It's imagery that, that he is the, the rootstock, the vine that comes up from the ground and then branches out to be able to be fruitful and to, and to bear grapes. And so, I mean, we can see this. If you go out into Virginia, there's beautiful wine country. I mean, it's not Napa Valley, but it's, but it's nice and it's beautiful rolling hills from here to Shenandoah. Um, and you can see the vines that come up and the branches that spread. And for us, this is an important text. It's a familiar text for many of you. It's beautiful imagery that we have that John writes here. And, and this is one of the funny things about John to me is, is when you're learning, like if you, if you go to seminary and you start learning original languages that the Bible is written in so that you can read those, if, when you start learning Greek, John is one of, the, one of the books of the New Testament that they send you to. And we can see that in John, that he's very repetitive. The vocabulary is fairly simple. And so it's a good one to be able to practice those skills and hone those skills of translation. But we'll see today that John's concepts and his theology are anything but simple. There's a depth here and, and that, is, that is really something that, that we're not going to be able to completely mind the depths of in our time together, but, but that every time we encounter John's gospel, it gets deeper and deeper. So today as we come into the text, I, I want us to be thinking together about what is it that you're rooted in? What is it that fuels you? What is it that inspires you and gets you up in the morning and is life-giving to you? Every one of us is a teleological creature. That means we, we do things with an end point in mind, whether it's conscious or not. And so what are your ambitions? What are your aspirations? What is it that, that really does fuel you and give you life? Well, it could be a desire to help people. It could be success or achievements to lift up those you love. It could be the need to make your dad proud or prove that you're better than your sibling. What is it that you're rooted in? We'll see in the passage today that Jesus is the true vine. He calls us to abide in him and in his love and in his friendship. So we're in John chapter 15. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. It'll also be on the screen for you. We're in a section that is called the farewell discourse, that Jesus is talking with his disciples around the, the table of the last meal that he shared with them. He had washed their feet, then Judas had left to go betray him. He had just promised the Holy Spirit to his disciples, and now he says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch itself it cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so this is the seventh and final I am statement in John. We've seen these seven as we've walked through this gospel together. um, And we can, and so we, we see these as we walk through that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he said, I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now he says, I am the true vine. Now, in this, we, we learned so much about who Jesus is. John has wrote this gospel so that we would understand who Jesus is. And so when he says, I'm the bread of life, we learn that just as bread sustains physical life, so Christ offers and sustains spiritual life. That he's the light of the world, so in a world lost in darkness, Jesus offers himself as a guide that will help us to see. That he's the door of the sheep, so that Jesus protects his followers as shepherds protect their flocks from predators, and he's the way into life. That he's the resurrection and the life, that death is not the final word for those who are in Christ, and he said this as he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. He said, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is committed to caring for and watching over those who are his. He said in, just in the last chapter that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the source of all truth and knowledge about God and the way that we come to the Father. And now he tells us, I am the true vine. That if we're in him, we can't help but bear fruit. Now this language of the true vine, I think it's important here to understand what Jesus is claiming. When he said, because that word true cues us into something. What, well, this, does that mean there's other vines? How do we know? What does it mean that you are the true vine? There is a long biblical history of this metaphor of vines and branches and vineyards um, that, his, that you can trace all the way through scripture. And so when Jesus says that his father, he says, my father is the vine dresser, the gardener, it, it actually calls us back to a, a bunch of Old Testament imagery in, through the Psalms and the prophets, particularly in, in the book of Isaiah, you you, you, he, you, in Isaiah chapter 5, there's imagery that, uh, of God's vineyard that is his people Israel. And so he talks about what's been happening in that vineyard and the lack of fruitfulness and lack of good fruit in the vineyard that he had planted in the land where he had planted the Israelites. And, and so there's an emphasis in that passage on the vine and the vines that God had planted and on the threat of God's judgment because the vineyard was unfruitful. And so when Jesus steps up here and says, I am the true vine, what he's saying is that he has come as a fulfillment of what Israel was called to be. That God's people showed throughout the entire Old Testament, we can read the stories of God's people falling short of their calling, short of the covenant they had made with God, unable to actually fulfill their calling as a, as a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests who were supposed to draw the rest of the world to worship the one true God. And so the vine is the people of God. When you get to Romans, Paul uses a similar metaphor when he talks about about, um, the tree of God's people and that some branches have been lopped off and other branches have been grafted in. And he talks about that as a way to talk about the Gentiles, the nations who have been brought into this this tree of God's family and grafted in and into what was happening and and into that so we can grow. And so this language of vine and branches or, or tree, that there is a rootedness and branches that grow is something we see throughout scripture. 
Jesus saying, I am the true vine, is calling on, the, on, on passages from Isaiah later on in chapters 10 and 11 when, when God says that there's an ax laid at the foot of the tree and that that ax was Assyria that was going to come in and cut down the tree, and, but a shoot would come from the stump out of the line of Jesse. You see, Jesus is that shoot. He is the vine that grew from the ashes. But there's also some pretty sobering implications for us in this passage, aren't there? He says, I'm the vine, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, the gardener. Branches that don't bear fruit, what happens to them? Cut off. Later on, they're collected up and thrown into the fire and burned. There's no usefulness left. But there are other branches that are fruitful. And just in case you thought you got away with something, if, you, if you're being fruitful to the glory of God, what, is, what does Jesus say about the fruitful branches? Well, you get pruned. So there's some difficulty and pain either way we go on this. Either way, it's going to hurt. But Jesus reassured his disciples right from the top here. He said, now listen, I've already said that you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. And back earlier on, in this same context, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And if, if you were with us and you read this passage, or if you remember it, um, Peter was, was one that, when Jesus came to wash his feet, Peter said, said, no way, you're not washing my feet. That's beneath you. I'm not going to let you do it. And, and Jesus said to Peter, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you can have no part with me. And Peter's reaction was, then wash all of me, <laughs> head to toe. And Jesus said, no, 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 Peter. I'm going to wash your feet. You've already bathed today, and you're clean. And, and John gave us a cue that, that that was more than, it had layers of depth, that it was not just physical cleanliness. It was not just a statement about Peter's B.O. or lack thereof. Like this was a, because he said not everyone there was clean, and Judas was the one that he was indicating. So Jesus had said that, but now he brings it back to them. And in, in this, as he t- continues to talk, he says, listen, I've already told you that you are clean. He's saying, I've already told you that your branches that are, that are rooted in me. And so this call then, when he says, uh, what the ESV translates abide, means that it, to be rooted in, to remain in, to reside in Christ. And so, if Jesus is the true vine, today's outline for us is, is fairly simple. There are three realities, or three callings that we see. We see the calling to abide in him, to abide in his love, and to enjoy his friendship. So first, there's a, there's a calling to us to abide in Jesus. The branches get their life from the vine. The vine produces fruit through the branches. This is something we know. You don't have to be like an agricultural wizard to understand this, Right? You cut a branch off of a tree and leave it on the ground, and it will die. And, I, and I'm amazed with people that are more com- know the complexities of agriculture or plants far better than I do. Like when my wife, Alyssa, will, will propagate plants and start things and just stick a branch in a, in a jar of water, and all of a sudden it starts growing. That's amazing to me. It means voodoo. <laughs> or just the way God designed things. Um, but it, there needs to be a source of nourishment, a source of roots that can bring nourishment to the whole plant. And so the, the vine produces fruit. So there's, there's, they're interrelated here because without branches, the vine itself isn't producing anything. And so it needs the branches to be able to produce fruit. And, and on the other hand, the branches without being tied into the vine are hopeless because they get their life from the vine. 
St. Augustine, early church father, said, a northern African church father said this. He said, the relation of the branches to the vine is such that they contribute nothing to the vine, but from it derive their own means of life, while that of the vine to the branches is such that it supplies their vital nourishment and receives nothing from them. And so they're having Christ abide in them and abiding themselves in Christ are both um, in both respects advantageous, not to Christ, but to the disciples. For when the branch is cut off, another might spring up from the living root, but, but that which is cut off cannot live apart from the root. And so this is, Augustine is showing that, that the work that Christ has done for us, the calling that Christ has to us here to abide in him, and we need to understand this, there is nothing that Jesus gets out of this deal. He provides everything for us. If we, get, if we decide not to and be rooted elsewhere, then another branch is going to spring out of the living vine. He supplies our life, but he also he brings fruit through us. And so we're called to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ, to, to find our dwelling in Christ so that we will bear much fruit. Like that's the purpose. I think we get hesitant about this sometimes. And we... Talk about fruitfulness, fruitfulness versus faithfulness as if they're diametrically opposed. But we see this elsewhere too, that apart from Jesus, we can't bear any fruit. That, that if we abide in Jesus, we will bear fruit as the Spirit works through us. It, Paul talks about this in, in Galatians chapter 5 when he says the fruit of the Spirit is, and some of you know this passage, but I want you to notice before I read it, fruit is singular, I almost always hear this read as fruits. You don't get to choose on this. You don't get to read this list and go, well, I like self-control, but not patience. I'm going to bear the fruit of self-control. No, the fruit of the Spirit. If you, are, if you abide in Christ and God's Spirit gives life to you through him, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He goes on to say, if we live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. And so what Paul is saying is, if you live by the Spirit, if you are tapped into the vine that is Christ, then the Spirit of God flows into you and through you and gives you life, then let's keep in step and bear fruit in accordance with that. I mean, think about how, much, how useless we are at trying to accomplish these things. Have you ever decided that you're going to become more patient? Like, that was always a trick thing, right? When I can remember being in, like, high school and college, and, and somebody would say, like, oh, will you pray for me? I, want, I would like to be more patient. And we are like, oh, you just cursed yourself. Because <laughs> God is going to give you all kinds of opportunities to learn to be patient. But we can't just will ourselves to that. In fact, the more we focus on it, the less patient we'll get, at least in my personal experience. <laughs> Like that, that I, if I come into a situation, I'm like, I need to be patient in this, I need to be patient in this, then, then it puts me more on edge to go like, ah, I'm frustrated. To try to be kinder, to try to have better self-control. Like we are headed into the holidays, people. I think every year I come into the holidays and think, you know what? Thanksgiving can be a day. Christmas can be like Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. It doesn't need to be November, December into January. 
And every year, I wonder when I get to January, what happened to those plans? We have resolutions that happen every January. I mean, how many of us haven't gone to a, have, have gone into a January thinking, this is the year where I lose the 20 pounds from last year? And, but, but, and we, we can work on self-control, but, but there's obvious failings that we have because there's an entire set of literature in a field that, uh, where millions of dollars are spent on self-help books and methods and techniques. And there's some practical wisdom that you can get there. But the Bible offers a completely different answer for us. You want to see fruit in your life? You want to see gentleness, kindness, love, patience, goodness, self-control grow in your life? Yeah, it takes some effort, but any fruit that we just try to bear on our own, trying to have our own rootedness or, or decide where we're going to root ourselves down in order to produce that fruit in our lives, that, that the answer is not our great effort at self-improvement. The answer that Scripture offers us is to live and rest and remain and abide more fully in Christ. That, that that means we need something that transcends everything and that our hope is a deep, vital connection to Jesus. And you see the fruit that we'll bear. Well, it has to be connected to prayer that's answered. Right before this passage, it, that, that we, Jesus makes this, this promise to us that he repeats here that whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so abiding in Jesus here, he says that, that if you abide in me, in verse 7, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. <clears throat> we had a long discussion in our community group this past week about the difficulty of that promise. That it says, ask whatever you wish and it'll be given to you. Because there are lots of times that we ask for things, good things, things that we think will glorify God. And the answer that God gives us is either no or wait. How, what, how do, we, do we deal with that? And the promise that Jesus has here well, what he's calling us to is that if we are so deeply rooted in him, it'll put us into a nourishing stream that will change and shape us as we grow. Psalm 1 talks about a tree that is, that a man that delights in the law of the Lord is like a tree that's planted by a stream of living water. Ezekiel talks about the stream that will flow from the temple with, the, with nourishing, life-giving um, water that will feed the trees. In Revelation 22, it talks about that same river with the tree of life on its banks. So, so this Again, is language that we see throughout Scripture and imagery we see throughout Scripture. And the, the answered prayer that we are promised is that God will bring fruitfulness in our lives to his own glory. And so the fruit is everything that Jesus has called us to, that we're, we're effective in calling Jesus' name to, to be able to be obedient to Jesus' commands, to be able to experience his joy that, we're, that we see in this passage to be able to love one another and to be able to bear witness to the world. As we do those things, it glorifies God and will be fruitful. Jesus uses the language of fruitfulness everywhere too. Remember earlier in John, he said that, and he was talking about himself at the moment, that, that a seed has to fall into the ground and die in order for it to be fruitful, for the, for the plant to grow. In, in the Synoptic Gospels, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, in Mark 4 in particular, Jesus tells the parable of the sower where he says that, that the word of God is like a sower who's in his field scattering seed. The imagery was a farmer that was, was, just would have a sack and handfuls of seeds spreading them into the fields. And he said some of the seed fell on a path 
Some of it fell on rocky soil, some of it fell among thorns, and some of it fell among good soil. And Jesus said that, that the seed that fell on the path was eaten up by the birds. The soil was too hard packed for the seed to sink in at all, and so the birds came in and ate it and, and swooped away. The seed that fell on rocky soil, the soil was shallow, and so the, the plants sprung up quickly, but there was nowhere for the roots to go, and so when the sun came out, they withered and died because they weren't deeply rooted. The seed that fell among thorns grew up, but the thorns ended up choking it out over time. But then there was the seed that fell on good soil. And Jesus said it has roots and it, will, it produces grain 30, 60, 100 times. And so there's this promise of fruitfulness as the word of God comes into us and as we dwell in and remain in the vine of Christ and find our life there. Now, it can be painful. I mean, we're promised that the good fruit-bearing branches will be pruned. And, and just like in Hebrews, we're told that God is a good father will discipline his children. I can tell you as the father of teenagers that they do not always appreciate and see the good of the pruning discipline of their dad. As a teenager, I remember that. And, and so we don't always like it, but, but on the other hand, it's God's discipline of us, his pruning work in us. When he cuts away the dead pieces of our lives and the dead pursuits, that fruitfulness can really come. Don Carson said that fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. The alternative is dead wood. But this vine metaphor makes it necessary that the wood is connected to the vine. And so faithfulness and fruitfulness aren't opposed to each other. Now, it is true that we can try to, try to like, make fruitfulness happen in our lives and in our churches. Like, we can put this on a whole church level. That we can, we can begin to measure fruitfulness by measurements that are not God's measurements. We can, we can conjure up some hype and some buzz and, and draw crowds that aren't actually following Christ and rooted deeply in him. Even in Jesus' ministry, do you remember, there have been points along the way where, where the crowds started to get big and Jesus did something that we probably wouldn't do in our current context as churches where he, you know, the crowds started to get big and so he realized they were going to try to make him king after he had fed the 5,000 and so Jesus slipped away because he, he wasn't about to do that. That when he was in Jerusalem in chapter 2, we read that Jesus was talking about that he is the temple, that if you tear down the temple in three days, he'll rebuild it. And the people saw the signs that he was doing in Jerusalem, believed in his name, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. That, that when the crowds started getting bigger again, that Jesus, and Jesus was after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was teaching on the bread of life. And he's, when he said, I am the bread of life, he also went on to say, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. And the crowds were like, okay. Even his disciples at that point, he was like, are you guys going to go too? And they said, where are we going to go? But Jesus, this was a hard teaching. Like Jesus was interested in real fruitfulness. He was interested in people that were going to be really tapped in to the life-giving reality that he is and filled by the Spirit of God. And so we can focus on fruitfulness to the, to the neglect of faithfulness, and that's not good because we're bearing false fruit. But we can also focus on faithfulness to the neglect of fruitfulness and begin to think that when God does good things in our lives that we need to be suspicious of it. We can develop a poverty theology that way. If you land more in the reformed streams theologically, you're going to be much more susceptible to this. I mean, that's my team, so it's talking about myself here. That we can have a little bit of a poverty theology, like when bad things happen, when hard things happen, we're like, thank you, Lord, for the pruning. 
And then something good happens and we're like, are you sure you weren't supposed to take that branch too? You wanted to leave that one? Are you sure, Lord? See, too often these are presented opposed to each other. And we hear, like in 1 Corinthians, that, we're, that all we can do is plant and water, and only God can give the growth. And yes, and amen. And in our lives, in our church, we will only see good growth in our fr- and fruitfulness if God grants it. We can't will that to happen. We can't manipulate God into fruitfulness. That is true, and we are promised here that if we abide in Christ, we will bear much fruit. It's a promise. Abide in me. A branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, and you can't unless you abide in me. In verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, and whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. This is a promise to us as individuals, as a collective, as the church, that if we are rooted in, tapped into, abiding in Christ, that we will bear fruit to the glory of God. And that's also why Jesus talks about that a tree will be known by its fruit in other places, that, that, if, we are, that if we are so deeply rooted in the life and presence of Jesus, we can't help but live fruitfully. Now, a tree being known by its fruit is something that I can definitely understand what Jesus is saying there, because again, I'm not much of an arborist. But if I walk up to a tree and there are apples on it, I have a pretty good idea of what kind of tree it is. Or pears, or lemons, or grapefruits. When I see the fruit, I'm able to say, oh, it's a grapefruit tree. If somebody like, hung a bunch of apples on a plum tree, I'd be very confused. <laughs> but at that point, the plum tree is not showing itself for what it truly is. And so there's, there's imagery here that is helpful for us, but, but I want to be careful today to be able to focus on the, the, the beauty of the promise of Jesus, that if we abide in him, if we are tapped into the life-giving reality of who, Je- who Jesus Christ is, that, that we will bear fruit in our lives. We will see the work of God in our lives, shaping us and reaching others. And, and so we've got to be careful to come to a point, not to come to a point where we don't expect God to work, that we can come expectantly saying, if I am tapped into Christ, God will bear fruit for the sake of his glory. The second calling we have is to abide in Jesus' love. He says, as we look down in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So what does it mean to abide in Jesus, to abide in his love? Well, he tells us it's just as he did with the Father and now he calls us to do that he remained in the Father's love throughout his ministry and life. And we see that over and over and over again that Jesus emphasizes. He says, listen, everything I'm saying is the word my Father gave me to say. Everything I'm doing is what, what my Father has called me to do. I don't do anything outside out of step with the Father. I don't say anything out of step with the Father. He is obedient and fully submitted and dependent on God as God incarnate. And so there's, there's, there's something beautiful that we see in Jesus here that is the calling to us as well. That to abide in his love, one aspect of that is obedience. Now, I think when we hear obedience, that doesn't sound very loving, does it? Like, why do we obey things? Usually, I mean, we're pretty simple creatures. It's usually because of, like, reward or, or consequence, right? 
What keeps you from driving as fast as you'd like to drive? Yeah, speed cameras in the district. Or police. <laughs> what keeps you from... From, I mean, we could we could name a, a thousand examples, but but for us, you, it often boils down to reward or consequence. So obedience doesn't feel like an outworking of love; it feels like trying to avoid consequence. This starts as a kid, right? That you learn there's certain things that you don't do because you know the consequence will be there. I mean, that's this is the level of moral reasoning that our dog Fozzie has. <laughs> if I sit down when they say sit they will give me a treat. Though, if we don't have a treat in hand, that little dog will never sit. Because <laughs> he's too smart. He knows. If I go and do, if I, oh, man. Yeah, I'm not going to get into all the ways we punish our dog. <laughs> I think the point's made. <laughs> and we don't abuse Fozzie. I'm just seeing that, like, it doesn't take much. He wilts. He's, he is the most, like, people-pleasing, sweet dog in the world. So all you have to do is say his name loud, and he, like, comes with his tail between his legs. But, but we, we live that way, and so obedience for us isn't an outworking of love. It's usually just trying to avoid consequences or get a reward. And so when we hear obedience, we often approach our relationship with God that way. It's as a transaction of, if I do what I'm supposed to do, then you'll make it better for me. And if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, then you're going to make it worse for me. And so then we look at circumstances in our lives and begin to think that way and go, well, this went well, so God must be endorsing it. Maybe. Or think something goes badly, and you're like, why is God punishing me? There must be something I've done to be disobedient. Maybe. Then you read about Job, and God's, God's the one that set him up. Like Satan said, hey, there's nobody here that will love you if they suffer. And God says, have you thought about this guy? <laughs> He's done nothing wrong. There's no consequence for Job's action there. And so it messes with our categories. And so here, what we see flowing out of Jesus is that his obedience to the Father is not for reward or consequence, there's no consequence for, for the second person of the Trinity within the Godhead who has never sinned because he is the second person of the Trinity in the Godhead, incarnate in flesh. So it's not reward and consequence. It's an expression, an outworking of his love for the Father. He's not trying to earn the Father's love. He's been loved by the Father for all of eternity, and he knows that. But it's an outworking of his love as he is, and, and a result of God's, the Father's love for him. And so when he says, abide in my love, what he's saying is, he immediately says, you'll do that by keeping my commandments. And what's the commandment, the big commandment he gave to start this whole thing off? Love one another. This is how the world will know you're my disciples, by the way that you love one another. And so here he says, abide in my love, and if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. And what's the goal of it? That my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Like, th we look at obedience, again, as, like, things not to do. And so this is why, when, as we live lives, we try to get, like, as close to the line before we think something might turn into sin as we can. And we try to blur that line into gray, and, and we don't realize that what we've done is that by nature, we are, we are highly flammable. That we are, we are just soaked in gasoline, and what we're doing is getting closer and closer to a fire, wondering, how close can I get before this destroys me? 
And so we don't, we, don't, we don't think about obedience as an outworking of our love for God or motivated by our love for God or here. Jesus is saying if we're tapped into and resting in and abiding in the vine that he is and, and it's his life coursing through us as the branches, that his joy will course through us as his branches. And that means that we're gonna, our lives will begin to look like his and we'll live obediently to him as an outworking of that love and for the sake of our joy. Because we don't think about God's commandments as being joy-producing. We think about them as keeping us from something. And this is the lie that Satan told in the garden. The very first one. You're not going to surely die. Don't you realize that God's keeping something from you? He knows that you'll be like God yourself. And we still buy into it. Now, obedience here is a call to be rested in, rooted in, the love of God for our joy. This is hard for us to imagine because we like it when we break the rules. It feels good, we get, a, we get an adrenaline rush because we're broken. I remember in college, we, I lived in this dorm that had like an inner courtyard and it was three stories tall. Um, and so it was all brick. I mean, it was made out of cinder blocks. Um, it, was, it, it was a dorm. <laughs> but big steel doors that would go into these suites of four bedrooms. And, and so, um, but there was one stretch where I don't know what was going on or who was doing it, but every single night somebody was pulling the fire alarm. So it would empty the whole place out. And after a while, a group of college men, boys, <laughs> um, it doesn't take many times for that to get old and for people to start getting a little belligerent with things, if you could imagine. And so I can remember things like guys coming out of showers and intentionally just standing there in the parking lot. I can remember that at one point, people out of their frustration at being woken up at 3 a.m. again by a fire alarm, going back, and all of a sudden, people started slamming these giant steel doors. And of course then, it led to a meeting with the residence director of saying, like, you cannot slam the doors. What do you think happened the next time the fire alarm went off? I mean, it was like cannons going off in that little courtyard of this brick building. Just pow, 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 pow. Like there were people standing. I think our, our suite stood at the door and slammed it repeatedly. <laughs> like once wasn't enough. We got to throw six to eight in there. Why? Because we're standing up for ourselves, we're in control of our situation, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and you can't keep me from it. And we do the same thing in our approach to God. God, I know, that what you, I know what you've said, I know you've said that that'll equal my joy, but it's not what I want right now. And we forget that over our whole lives we have example after example that the joy that is offered to us in this world comes up shallow and incomplete and unfulfilling. And so if, you're really, if you are really tapped into Christ and God's spirit is within you, you're being transformed by Jesus and by his presence, there's going to be a reality in your life that you begin to look at your life and wonder, like Paul does in Romans 7, like, why do I do the things I hate to do and don't do the things I want to do? Like, I am at war within myself, wretched man that I am. On the other hand, the more tapped into Jesus we are and the more overwhelmed we are by God's love for us in Christ, love that meets us in our deepest longings and needs, love that will lead us to joy-filled obedience in order to be closer to God, that it'll become more natural for us 
I heard Pastor Rich say a couple of weeks ago that joy, having joy in our lives is active resistance against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We can't possibly begin to comprehend the love that God has for us. All of our theologies, all of our experiences cannot begin to grasp the fullness of who God is and his love for us in Christ. Because what we do is we take, like, we take the equivalent of a teaspoon into the ocean of who God is, and we lift it up in all of its intensity and beauty and say, this is God. Here is my statement on who God is. Here is the theology, I believe. And then we pour it into our lives and say, this is what it means to have the Christian experience. In John 15, Jesus is calling us to dive into the ocean, to become immersed, to be completely overwhelmed by God's love for us, and to rest in that place to the glory of God and the fullness of our joy. And imagine the impact if we actually did this. Uh, Charles Octavius Booth said, What a power the believers in Christ will be in this world where such multitudes are hateful and hating one another when they all come to abound in deep, pure, fervent love to God and to their neighbors. How they will be stimulated to labor and give and give and pray for the gathering of every creature in the world into the fold of Christ when they love God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with all their heart and soul and might and mind and strength and really, truly love their neighbor as themselves. An increase of such love will be accompanied by a vast increase of missionary zeal and enterprise, and no longer would it be before there will, not, not long would it be before there will be what we hear in Revelation, great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus says, abide, remain, exist fueled by him as the vine in his love. Third, the third calling to us is to enjoy Jesus' friendship. Verses 12 to 17, he says, My commandment is that you, you love one another as I have loved you, and greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We know where this is going. Jesus is arrested on the night he's saying these things and killed the next day. He says here, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer will I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For I've, I have ever, I'm sorry, I've called you friends for all that I have heard from the, my father I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So Jesus calls us to rest in his friendship. That as we abide in him and abide in his love and enjoy his friendship, then that'll shape our interaction with each other because we'll love one another as he calls us to here. But he calls us his friend. We are living in the midst of the loneliest generation of world history. And the way that I'm using that the way the Bible uses generation, the Bible uses the word generation not to mean like boomer versus Gen X versus millennial versus Gen Z. The Bible uses generation to talk about all of the people on earth or in a place at a given time. And so so we are living in the loneliest generation in, in world history, especially in the West and especially in the United States. 
The data is overwhelming. If you haven't heard or read reports or read articles on this, it might be because you're not paying attention or you're just completely disconnected from the world, and thank God for that. I admire you. <laughs> but it's overwhelming. The pandemic only made it worse. Online life is a major contributor to it, and social media, and I'm not just going to rail against social media, but, but because there's a value and a beauty to it in its right place as a tool for us to use, but the data is overwhelming that there's an inverse relationship of time spent on social media and a person's happiness. We live in the midst of the greatest sense of connectedness in human history, and yet we're lonelier than ever. Like we, we cannot know thousands of people that we're connected to online. And what happens is that we sit in the same rooms, to, in, in a room together, and present with everyone else except the people that we're physically sitting with. And so it ha- it's, it's shaping us. And, and then you add into the difficulty that so many of, of you are facing. The friendship, the nature of friendship and relationship changes as you get older. And it, it's hard and it's lonely way too often. But here, Jesus calls us his friends. Now he says, you're my friends if you obey me. And so there's an obedience element here. That's not the case with most of our friendships. Like if I came to you and said, hey, you're my friend if you obey me. You'd be like, that is weird. Like, you'd probably end up putting me on a podcast or something, this pastor. (laughs) But when we think of friendships, we think of two peers. You're on equal footing. You're coming together as friends together. You have an interest together. There's there's not somebody that's over the other. Like, we might call that a mentor or a leader, but but friendship for us has this, like, egalitarian field. But Jesus here, we can never forget that he calls us friends because he's, but because he's also God incarnate, because he is the one in charge, and he's the source of our joy, and his own father is the source of his power and joy, that obedience becomes a characteristic of friendship with Christ, not a condition of it. And again, all the shallowness of this world comes up short, that then it should show us that there's something deeper here, that if we can really abide in Christ and abide in his love, that our, our lives will be shaped by an overflow of that love. And that means that friendship isn't entirely reciprocal. And there's biblical precedent here, too. The only others that, I, that I've found that are called a friend of God in Scripture are Abraham and Moses. That they had that close of a relationship with God that they were called God's friend. Abraham in Second Chronicles, Isaiah in James. So it's all looking back at Abraham. And, in Mo, and Moses was called God's friend in Exodus 33 when he was on Mount Sinai. And so they, were, they, were, they are called friends of God, but God is never called their friend. God has never called anyone's friend in the entirety of Scripture. And so when Jesus says, I have called you friends, you are my friends, he's not inviting us into as if we're on equal ground. He is saying that he is giving us his friendship. One theologian said here, an absolute potentate demands obedience in all his subjects. His slaves are simply told what to do, while his friends are informed of his thinking, enjoy his confidence, and learn to obey with a sense of privilege, with full understanding of their master's heart. This is what Jesus calls us to in in friendship with him. That he invites us to know not just the ways, but the whys, to know the mind of God. That as we read in in Romans chapter 12, when it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That he's he's saying, I've told you. 
what's on my mind. I'm not, you're not a servant. You know what your master is doing. I've called you friends because everything the Father has made known, I've made known to you. And in, in case the disciples are going to get puffed up and prideful on this, like, we're friends of Jesus. He immediately he says, and by the way, uh, I chose you. You didn't choose me for this. You're not wiser, you're not more moral. We see all through the Gospels that the disciples are anything but, right? They make a ton of mistakes. The guy on who, that was the rock on whom Jesus was, would build his church was just told in this same context in chapter 13, Jesus says, Peter, you're not gonna die for me tonight. You're gonna deny me three times before the rooster crows. Like, Jesus is saying, this is not because you guys are so great. Like, you're, you're fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. Like, you guys weren't exactly like on the upwardly mobile elements of society here. But Jesus set them apart. He, he, he laid down his life for, the sake of that, for their sake and for the sake of fruitfulness in their lives and through them. And it closes with a reminder from Jesus of the fruit they're going to bear. It has to do with prayer that you can, we can ask God in Christ's name and, and that he will answer us. That if we are remaining and abiding and bearing fruit for God's glory, then there will be fruitfulness in asking God to work as we pray to him. And so there's a beauty of this promise that comes to us today as well, that we have the opportunity to turn to Christ, to be rooted in Christ, and to abide in Christ. But as we come to Jesus, if you are filled with the Spirit of God and drawn to Christ as the true vine, there's a reminder here for us too that God chooses you, that we have no foundation or room for pride or selfishness with his love. We have nothing to do with the work. We don't give back to the vine, but the vine nourishes the branches so that there will be fruit that lasts. And so we come back to the question, what are you rooted in? Jesus is the true vine, so he says, abide in my love, abide, abide in Christ, abide in his love, and enjoy his friendship. Back to the wine blight that we started with. Europe was being wiped out, the vineyards in Europe. You know this is a major crisis. If the French didn't have wine, what would they, what would they have their identity rooted in? And so, in the most American of ways, a problem that was caused by Americans, they swooped in and solved because people started to realize that it was the old world vines that were dying when they were brought stateside. But the American vines, which weren't very good grapes, were doing fine. And so they started to understand and started to realize that this little aphid didn't really affect the vines or the roots of the American vines. And scientists found the solution that they could graft in the European old world vines on top of American rootstock, and that was a way that it could survive. And it stands through today that the vast majority of vineyards in the United States and through Europe use American rootstock with grafted in European vines. It's incredible. That's why I told you, when I first heard the story, I couldn't actually believe it. Like, that sounds, again, like the most American of stories, right? Like, American exceptionalism, our roots are what saved wine for the world. <laughs> Like, what you, but it's true. And what an image for us today. 
Because we try to have roots on our own. We try to root ourselves on we own. And we have no idea what's going to happen in the soil of a broken world or in our own hearts. Are, are, is, it gonna be so, is the seed of God's word going to be on the paths eaten by birds or on shallow rocky soil or choked out by thorns? But it, or will our own roots and the things that we root ourselves in get eaten alive because we, we can't make it through this alone? Jesus is the only vine that can nourish us to fruitfulness. He is the rootstock that we are grafted into because nothing can take him down. He's defeated death and sin. And so if we remain in him and live in him and abide in him and his love and enjoy his friendship, our lives will be fruitful and we'll be able to live and work to the glory of God and the joy of all people. Let's pray. Father, this is a beautiful and rich passage. And it's a little hard to take if we're honest with ourselves. We, we like the story that we tell of our own lives of how we've done work and we've done, we're, we are responsible for the fruit that we bear and, and like to be able to show and tell the ways that, that we've made it through. But what your word tells us today, and what are, if we're honest, our experiences tell us too, is that, that if we're on our own and trying to, trying to become what you have called us to be, if we're on our own and trying to, trying to bear good fruit that's really going to change people's lives and change this world itself, and we're not tapped into Christ as the true vine, then we're going to wither. will bear no real fruit. Father, I, I want to be a part of something that lasts. I, and, and we have this promise in Jesus that, that his kingdom will go on forever and ever, that he reigns and rules now, is going to return and make all things new. So I pray today that you would, you would shake up our hearts. Would you give us a real ability to see the things that we, have, we are counting on right now for the nourishment of our hearts and souls? Would you allow us and, and, and move by your spirit to help us to see and recognize the actual fruit of our lives? I pray today that there, there would be some here that would, that would turn to Christ for the first time and become deeply rooted in him so that they can have his life-giving power and joy streaming through them and bearing fruit. And Lord, I pray for for those of us who are rooted in Christ already, have been grafted into this vine, that you would do the pruning necessary that we could be fruitful. Lord, we lift our church to you in this pursuit. We lift our hearts to you in this pursuit. And we thank you for Jesus and that he is the true vine. We pray in his name. Amen.